Yes, Father, we do want to thank you for uh, just for your faithfulness. And Lord, that you have given to us your word is such a wonderful thing. And these sessions that we've gone through remind us that of that time and time again, of how privileged we are to have had you speak to us and for your word to be handed down to us, for us to have it in our own language and to have uh, gifted teachers that you've given to the church to open up that word to us. Lord, we're so blessed and we do want to thank you for uh, your goodness to us in this. And we thank you for the great plan of salvation. Thank you for the many facets of salvation that are, are brought out throughout this letter to the Romans and for the chance to, to just slow down and to, to feast on these aspects of the gospel has been just so refreshing for our souls. And we pray, Father, that, that uh, these, these gospel truths would be planted deep in us and would produce a rich harvest in our lives and in the lives of others who we're able to share it with. We thank you for Jerry. Thank you for the ways you've gifted him. Thank you for his, his energy and commitment to this module. And I pray, Father, that tonight, by your spirit, you would be at work in him again. As he draws this module to a close, may there not be a sense that this is winding down. But Lord, we would be, we would be fired up as we come to your word again and ask for the illumination of your spirit. And Lord, that your, your words would change us. And Lord, that your words would reach us in power as we commit this night to you, thanking you again for all your goodness to us and asking for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, indeed. Uh, thank you, Duncan. And uh, welcome and uh, welcome to you all for the, the last time in this module, as Duncan has indicated. Uh, I, I love this letter to the Romans, and I hope that you've come to love it just that little bit more as well. This final section of the letter is about ministry. And insofar as the theme of the whole letter can be seen as we've uh, underlined again and again as salvation, with each of the eight sections of the letter exploring a key component of salvation, it is a fitting and significant providence in, I think, the Holy Spirit's inspiring of the Apostle that the letter ends on this note of ministry. Uh, balloons are there because it's party time. Uh, it is the, uh, uh, the conclusion to the module. We go out on a high, I hope, and, uh, and I hope that you will see that uh, that's where salvation is leading. Um, in, uh, in a celebratory fashion, uh, where, where God's salvation in Jesus Christ ends, and, and this never ceases to thrill me, is it ends in ministry. We get to serve. In other words, the gospel doesn't simply afford to us a complete security, uh, wonderful as that is in itself. And, and we, would, we would bask in the, the wonder of that for all eternity and the blessing of that were that uh, the only thing that we were given, an absolute lasting security. Uh, but more than security, we're given significance. We get to share with the Lord in all that he is doing. I remember how Jesus said in John chapter 5 at verse 17, he said, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. And the God who 
uh, saves us, the God who brings us to himself, is a God who delights to be at work. Um, not arduous work, not boring work, but he delights to work. He is the creator and always doing a new thing. And uh, the wonder of it is we get to share with him in his work in the here and now. Uh, had you been there at creation, you would have been just gobsmacked by the the wonder of seeing the living God at work. You'd have thought, what, what a wonderful, thrilling thing it is to simply to be alongside such a God and to share with him in his work. And, and that's the privilege that we're given. We get to serve the living God. And, and that really is what ministry means. It's a, a Latin word, minister. Uh, most of you are way too uh, young to have been taught Latin as a matter of course at school. But if you were of an age where you got Latin, you would know that minister simply means a servant and we get to serve. And it's important, I think, for us to recognize that this is um, appropriately the culmination of Paul's exposition of salvation. Uh, we get to serve, and this is all about ministry. Um, Paul himself, in one of his later letters, one of the pastoral letters, First Timothy, uh, in chapter one, he starts off in from verse 12, really, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And there's a man who is, is still towards the end of his life, um, simply reveling in the wonder of the fact that he should have been appointed by the Lord to serve. And in case you think that, well, that's okay for him because he was an apostle and none of us get to be apostles. He goes on in that same passage to underline that, that the grace of God shown towards him in his life was simply a rough sketch, as he puts it, of what uh, the Lord is pleased to do in all who trust in him. So that uh, that's a rough sketch of what uh, he does in your life as well. He saves you to serve. And it's not only in this life that we get to serve. It is in eternity and the glory of heaven. Uh, we shall serve the Lord in eternity. So you find in Revelation chapter 5 at verse 10, for instance, uh, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Um, the hosts of heaven delight in this. The, the people of God down through every generation delight in this, that, that we have been given that significance. And, and far from simply loafing around in heaven, chilling out and doing nothing and getting bored out our heads, that's the last thing that's going to happen. We get to serve God. We get to share with him in what he is doing. As Revelation chapter 7 verse 15 puts it, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, uh, never getting tired, never feeling a need, some refreshment, uh, always delighting and finding ourselves invigorated and exhilarated in the service of God. That's our privilege, that's our pleasure. And therefore it is, as I say, appropriate that Paul's portrayal of God's salvation concludes with this section on ministry. And that's how we're going to look at the section. And I hope you will see how very comprehensive and practical this is. Um, you, as a believer, have been appointed to his service. 
uh, in uh, days of yore, people would have talked about, uh, spoken about themselves having, you know, I'm, I'm in service. Um, they they live their lives serving it in the house of another and sharing in that family life. And uh, what Paul really works through, through the uh, final chapter and a half of this letter, is essentially the, the components of ministry. And uh, it's, it's a, a very, very helpful package that will equip you to serve the living God. And the way that we will work through it is in this fashion, uh, five different headings. They're all related, obviously, to one another. Um, first of all, understanding the principles of ministry and then discerning the parameters of ministry. Uh, it does have parameters. We need to uh, recognize what those parameters are for each of ourselves. We're not called, each of us, to do everything. There are particular parameters within which our service falls. Then embracing the practicalities of ministry, um, working through that. And Paul is nothing if not practical, uh, a, a very spiritually minded man and a man who's reliant on the spirit of God and yet um, not averse to the practicalities that are involved as well. Very instructive indeed. And then um, in the, the last chapter, uh, two sections there, um, the first 23 verses of chapter 16, retaining the priorities in ministry and uh, then securing the purpose of ministry. So that's how we're, we're going to work through this section on ministry. And I think you will find it helpful, uh, not only this evening, but as you come to read through Romans for yourself, to have that, that sense of the way that it's carefully ordered. Uh, Paul has a very, very clear way of thinking and all the way through the the letter i hope you've seen how one thing leads on to another and so having picked up on the back of um, the 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 exposition of the wonderful grace of god whereby he has provided that righteousness for us in jesus in chapters one to eight and then spill that out onto the, the the wide, wide canvas of history to demonstrate the way that the Lord gloriously holds together his righteousness and his mercy together. Um, then seeing that issuing in the response of love. But that love is channeled through lives that are ministering, that are serving God, sharing with him in his work. So let's uh, let's start in. If you have a Bible, it'd be helpful for you just to have the, the text of Romans open at chapter 15. We'll start in at verse 8. And uh, I've called this first section, Getting the Picture, Understanding the Principles of Ministry. These verses really do provide a bridge between the previous instruction that Paul has been giving and this next section. And if you are uh, dipping into the commentaries that I've suggested to you, you will find that they are often therefore understood, these, these uh, verse 8 is often understood as part of and the conclusion to that previous uh, instruction that we looked at last uh, Monday evening. But um, to my mind, they're best understood as providing an introduction actually to this final section of the letter. Um, and as when putting together a jigsaw. Some of you are, are jigsaw fanatics, I'm sure. Uh, it is the corner pieces for which you look first. So here we also are given by Paul straight off the four basic corner pieces which help frame Christian ministry. 
Um, and I think it's important for us to, to get that clear from the outset, um, just how that service that we render to the Lord is properly understood. And these are the four basic principles of Christian ministry. And when I, when I use that term Christian ministry, I don't mean uh, ministry with a capital M, I mean ministry with a small M, that which we are all in one capacity or another involved in uh, by dint of his grace. The first corner piece, the first principle is simply a recognition that we share whatever it is we're doing. We share in the ministry of the Son of God, verses 8 and 9a. I tell you, says Paul, that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Ministry, as I say, is to be understood as the continuing ministry of the Son of God. Christ has become a servant or a minister of the Jews. Uh, how does he do that? He does that by his spirit through his people. And, and it's that ministry of Jesus himself that we now find ourselves caught up in. The ministry each of us exercises is to be understood, therefore, as part of that continuing ministry of Jesus himself. So that uh, Luke, as we'll see in um, the second module next year, uh, he starts his, his uh, second volume by saying, in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now in Acts, he narrates what Jesus continued to do and to teach. And all that the early church are involved in is the ministry, the continuing ministry of Jesus himself. And we don't understand our ministry and our ministries in that light. And you'll see how this is defined by Paul in these couple of verses in an important threefold manner. Um, it is, he says, uh, on behalf of God's truth. Um, that ministry of Jesus, uh, which he himself, when he spoke to Pilate, you remember in John chapter 18, verse 37, he said, for this reason, I came into the world to testify to the truth. And there is a sense, therefore, in which whatever form and shape our ministry, our particular sphere of service takes, um, it is part of that ministry whereby he is continuing to testify to the truth of God. So it is on behalf of God's truth. It is so that the promises made to the patriarchs may, might be confirmed. And therefore, our ministry, again, is, is always going to be seen as and understood by us as the outworking and the fulfillment, the realizing of the promises that God has made that find their fulfillment in Jesus. And the third way in which Paul speaks of this ministry of Jesus is so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Um, and that's the end to which the ministry of Jesus is directed. And that leads on to the, the second uh, corner piece of the jigsaw of ministry, the second principle that there is in verse 9a. And that is to, to recognize that all ministry is not only part and parcel of the, the continuing ministry of the Son of God, all ministry is always to be for the furtherance of the glory of God. 
um, that uh, statement that Paul makes there is, is an important statement. It is that the Gentiles, along with the Jews, might glorify God for his mercy. It is to the glory of God that ministry is undertaken. The aim of all ministry is not that those ministering may be acclaimed or appreciated, but rather that God may be glorified. And, and that's perhaps uh, a, 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 a truth that we need to have impressed on us in these days of a celebrity culture where the society in which we live wants to make much of the minister. And uh, like John the Baptist of old, we, we have to work quite hard, both uh, in the way that we view those around us and the way in which others perhaps view us to ensure that, as John the Baptist said, uh, he must increase, I must decrease. Always, that's the pattern. He must increase, I must decrease, so that the, the focus is not on us, but it is on him. And he being glorified and above all glorified for his mercy extended towards those who once were no people um, and we do well always to uh, to reflect on the particular sphere of ministry that's entrusted to us and be considering always uh, whether God is the one who is being glorified through it and whether it is indeed the the mercy of God that is being glorified God glorified for his mercy Verses 9b to 12 uh, highlight a third principle, and that is that all ministry is under the direction of the word of God. You'll see there how Paul goes on and says, as it is written, um, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing the praises of your name. Uh, and he, he goes on and quotes a number of passages of scripture. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22 at verse 50 and Psalm 18 verse 49, then Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 43, then Psalm 117, a shorter psalm, just two verses and he quotes verse 1, and then from the, um, uh, the Septuagint version of Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10, um, very deliberately quoting these passages of scripture to underscore this important principle that all ministry is undertaken under the direction it is shaped by directed by the word of god and is to be understood by the illumination of the word of god uh, paul clearly here was perhaps thinking particularly about his own ministry aware that in a way that was to many a jew thoroughly countercultural. The scriptures themselves do actually consistently speak of God's purpose for the Gentiles. For some Jews, that was anathema. But Paul had understood that uh, the ministry that he undertook as the apostle to the Gentiles was indeed something that was informed by and uh, prophesied by the word of God himself that had helped to shape his own conviction as to the ministry he was being called by the Lord to exercise. And the fourth basic principle, obviously, of ministry, verse 13, and again, it's helpful just to, to have these as the, the kind of cornerstones that frame all our understanding of ministry. Uh, the fourth principle is that all ministry is undertaken through the empowering of the Spirit of God. 
And so you find verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's important to recognize that the great end to which all Christian ministry is exercised uh, think about this in the manner in which you live out your day-by-day -day life is the way you go in which you go about all that you seek to be and to do for the Lord, the great end to which all Christian ministry is exercised under the glory of God is that of cultivating joy, peace, and hope in the lives of ordinary men and women around you. Worth repeating that for you. The great end under God and his glory to which all Christian ministry, however mundane and low profile it may be, the end to which it's exercised is that of cultivating joy, peace and hope in the lives of ordinary men and women. Um, and there is in that an upward dimension, joy in the Lord. That's what we, we want to cultivate, a delight in him. Uh, enabling those around us more and more simply to revel and bask and delight in the Lord and all that he is. Joy in the Lord. There is an outward dimension, peace in our relationships with others, that we'll learn to live at peace with those around us. We learn to be instruments of peace amongst those who are our neighbours, our family, our friends, and so on. There is that upward dimension, that outward dimension, and there is that future forward-looking dimension as well, hope in the prospect of eternal life. And both the exercise of ministry itself and the desired effect in others can only be accomplished through the power of the Spirit of God. And it is important, therefore, that you and I recognize that, recognize the end to which that ministry is exercised, our day-by-day -day living as we share with Jesus in all that he is doing, uh, as we mingle with different people, as we come into contact with different people in different situations, joy, peace, and hope, that upward, uh, outward, and forward-looking dimension. That's never going to happen apart from the enabling power of the Spirit of God. Please, God, day by day, empower me for the living of my life to that end, that I might cultivate joy in the hearts of those around me, joy in yourself, a peace in their relationships with others, and a hope in place of their despair. That's the principles, um, getting the picture. Verses 14 to 21 take us on to a second important issue. And that is what I've called discerning the parameters of ministry or locating your place. Understanding the principles obviously provides the framework for thinking about ministry and is the necessary starting point. But what that ministry will look like in experience will vary greatly from person to person. So how do you go about discerning the specific ministry which the Lord calls you to exercise? And these verses 14 to 21 are extremely helpful. Um, you can go back to them again and again, but I think you will, you will find that they're very helpful in actually um, working through for yourself precisely where you fit in, in the ongoing continuing ministry of Jesus. And the account of his own ministry, which Paul gives here in these verses, affords an insight into and some guidelines about how we discern the specific ministry to which we're called. 
And there are these three main headings here that I want to direct you uh, to as he works this through verses 14 to 21. First of all, um, your calling will be the gift of God. You'll note how Paul speaks here in verse 15, the grace God gave me. Um, and the wording that he uses here is identical with the wording that he uses in chapter 12, verse 3, uh, by the grace given to me by God. Um, in Paul's case, he was obviously profoundly conscious of a number of particular distinctives in the ministry that was given to him by the Lord. But the point that we need to grasp is, uh, first off, you don't get to choose what your role is much as you might like to. It's not like the Lord gives you a kind of palette of different possibilities and says, well, these are the kind of options, uh, what do you fancy? Uh, and we get to choose. Um, no, it's the other way around. Uh, he says, I have, I have called you to be this. I've called you to do this for me. Uh, as Paul puts it in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, uh, I thank Christ Jesus because he appointed me to his service. Paul didn't go looking for that at all, uh, any more than I went looking to be a minister of the word of God. That was, in fact, the very last thing. Uh, well, no, the second last thing. I think the, the last thing I would ever have wanted to be would be an eye surgeon. But the second last thing was, was a minister. Uh, I really did not want to. But um, I, I, it wasn't my call. It's, it's the call of God. Your calling will be the gift of God. And you'll see here that Paul is able to recognize a number of particular distinctives in the ministry that was given to him by the Lord. So he's he's more than just someone who, who has a kind of vague sense that he's called to preach the word of God. You'll see in verses 14 and 15, he recognizes that he has been given an apostolic authority. Um, that's, that's not something that everyone is given, but he recognizes that has been entrusted to him. Um, you can read the background to that through the uh, the three different narratives of his own conversion and his calling, the way in which that similarly was confirmed by the apostles in Jerusalem as well. And he recognizes that is part and parcel of, of the calling that he has. He has an apostolic authority. In verses 16 and 18, you will see he recognizes that um, that, that apostolic authority had a particular specific locus, namely a Gentile constituency. Um, he wasn't simply to bring the, the, the word of God with apostolic authority to, to just everyone that he happened to meet, but it was with a very particular focus. He was to go to the Gentiles. Um, and a bit like Jonah in some ways, for a Jew, that would have been the last sort of constituency that, humanly speaking, he would have wanted to go to at all. The, the Gentiles uh, were, were just the, the pits so far as Paul, um, prior to his conversion, was concerned. Um, but that was the, the place and the people to whom the Lord called him. And he, and he recognized that, that it was a Gentile constituency. And more than that, he recognized as well, verses 20 and 21, that he had what I've called a pioneering priority. Uh, that was his specific uh, role under God. It was to be as a pioneer, uh, opening up ground that hitherto hadn't been evangelized at all. Uh, not building on the labors of another, but himself being the pioneer. Uh, 
And those three distinctives that he had come to recognize as part and parcel of God's calling hedged him in to the particular form of ministry that he exercised. And that's the first thing to be clear about here. Your calling will be the gift of God. Now, um, ask him about that. Um, pray it through with the Lord. Talk it through with others. Talk it through with you, your, your pastoral leaders. But, but recognize that, that God will have a call on your life. Um, what that call is, um, it, it will be shaped by a number of distinctives that uh, almost certainly he will, as you seek him, he will make clear to you. Um, I, I sometimes think that that as churches, we're, we're not as good at that as perhaps we might be. And we don't uh, always give sufficient help to folk in terms of getting clear under God what their calling is. And as a result, uh, by default, uh, it can sometimes be that the, the perspective that people have tends to be shaped by the expectations of the society around them rather than by the call of God. Um, and so, for instance, if I may use this as an illustration, um, when, when we got married quite early on, um, my wife recognized under God that her call was to be a wife and a mother. And, and she stopped working and uh, she, she got a, a lot of flack from a lot of different people. Why? Why would you stop working? Uh, and she found it very difficult to explain to a lot of friends, including Christian friends, interestingly, that this actually was her calling under God. And, and one of the things that can happen is that we, by default, we end up having God's people uh, having their, their understanding of ministry shaped more by the society and the culture than by God himself. And, and there is a pastoral responsibility, I guess, we probably have and need to apply ourselves to fulfill more earnestly in that regard. Secondly, uh, again, thinking about your role, your place and the purposes of God, where you fit in and the continuing ministry of Jesus, your business, whatever shape, form that service takes, your business will be the gospel of God. You will note how Paul speaks about that here in verse 16. Uh, about the ministry that he's been given. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. And there is a very real sense in which that's applicable to every believer. That's what he has given you. Um, in whatever capacity it may be, that's the great privilege that he has given to you. He has made you a priest, given you the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Um, so whatever your particular role, whatever particular spheres of service you may have, that's your business. It is the business of proclaiming the gospel of God. And <clears throat> we do well to, to recognize that. Um, we exercise various different ministries, obviously, uh, all sorts of different ministries. Um, and, and it's important to, to recognize from what Paul says here uh, how that relates, uh, first of all, to securing the obedience of faith. Uh, look at verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. 
Um, so ministry, again, whatever form it takes, is directed to securing the obedience of faith. And we've seen that before, that, that that really has to do with our coming under the lordship of Jesus and acknowledging that he's Lord. He's the one who uh, whose uh, teaching we follow, whose uh, direction we adhere to. Uh, we exercise faith. It's, it's the cultivation of that faith that recognizes the lordship of Jesus. Securing the obedience of faith and the ministry that we exercise will also relate to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You see again in verse 16 how Paul speaks there, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And putting these two together, um, it's simply uh, important to recognize that the the ministry that you exercise, your business will be the gospel of God, and your ministry will therefore be and needs to be seen to be by you as part of that grace by which people are either coming to Christ in faith or growing in Christ in that faith, or quite probably both but but that's what you're about as a believer. He has given to you the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel to the end that people may come to trust in Jesus. And as they trust in Jesus, that they might grow in Jesus. And again, you don't have to look hard or long in the, the letters that Paul writes to the churches to see how that emphasis occurs again and again. We are to build one another up. Um, to be part of that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, because that's what the Lord Jesus is doing. He is drawing people to himself and he is building people up in the knowledge and love of himself. And as you uh, consider uh, where you fit in, not only is your calling the gift of God, not only is your business the uh, gospel of God, your desire will be the glory of God. Um, note how Paul speaks here. Uh, in verses 18 and 19 about his refusal to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. And you'll see there he is careful to acknowledge three things. He's careful to acknowledge, first of all, the activity of the Son of God. It's what Jesus, the risen living Jesus, is continuing to do. It's the activity of the Son of God that he's pointed to. Secondly, he's uh, referring to the power of the Spirit of God as well. See in verse 19, uh, what he has said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, in word and deed, in signs and wonders, uh, the power of the Spirit of God. And with that, also the promise of the word of God. Um, that's that's what um, frames the way in which he goes about his ministry. Um, always conscious of the activity of the Son of God, what Jesus is doing in him and through him. Always aware of the power of the Spirit of God, uh, demonstrating that Jesus is the risen Son of God. He is for real. He is at work and always uh, bringing to fulfillment the promise of the word of God, that God who is the resurrecting God, who raises the dead, who brings new light, who shines light into the darkness. Uh, it is, in other words, emphatically God's doing. And Paul is careful to ensure that it is God 
who will be glorified through his ministry. And as you seek to locate your place, discern the parameters of ministry, um, these are the three considerations that will help you uh, see and understand where you fit in. Your day-by-day -day living uh, will be the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So when, um, uh, for instance, uh, you have idle chat at a bus stop and you've got maybe 10, 15 minutes, you get into conversation and someone asks you, what is it that you do? You can tell them, hey, I'm a priest. And they will, they will maybe look blank at you and say, you, you know, you don't look like a priest and so on. And you say, well, that, that's, that's my, my role. I, I have the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. It's your privilege. Um, let's move on. Um, we could spend a little bit of time in that, but I want to press on. Verses 22 to 33, what I call putting in the hard yards. This is the practicalities of ministry. And there is a lot more to ministry, and Paul would be the first to say this, than simply the high octane signs and wonders stuff that he's just spoken about. Yes, Jesus does some amazing things. Yes, Jesus did uh, wonderful things in and through the apostles' life and continues to do wonderful things, uh, sometimes quite dramatic things, sometimes quite remarkable things, sometimes quite miraculous things. It is just amazing the things that he does. But much of the time, there are routine tasks to be done that, that aren't actually that dramatic at all. And there are, with that, important disciplines to be embraced. These are the practicalities of ministry. Paul's ministry was that fruitful under God, not just because he kind of crossed his fingers, hoped for the best and said, abracadabra, boom, there it happens. It doesn't work like that. It's not magic at all. There are certain basic practicalities. And again, this is just so helpful. Um, this is where salvation issues in lives that are lived in the service of God, through whom God is at work in wonderful ways. And uh, in order for that to, to be affected, we apply ourselves gladly to certain disciplines. And there are three here to which um, I, I point you. And it's to these that Paul is pointing in this uh, next part of the final section. How do you go about exercising the ministry to which the Lord has appointed you? And again, I think it's uh, informative uh, for us as individuals, very informative for us as churches as well, in terms of um, understanding the practicalities involved in effective ministry. Um, uh, time is, is short, so I'll leave you to read through those verses for yourself at your leisure, verses 22 to 23. Um, but let me make a number of points in connection with them um, in, in highlighting what I think are three key practicalities. The first of which I have called missional planning. Um, as I say, ministry doesn't magically happen. Um, it is not all about doing. There is a need for taking the time carefully to think through what action is required, when and how. I've been reading just this past little while a, a little book um, called uh, So Everyone Can Hear. And it's, it's a very practical book. And um, it's really about communicating the gospel in a digital age. 
and it's it's got a whole load of very helpful lessons that as churches we certainly need to be learning in these days without in any sense compromising the gospel without in any sense taking away from the uh, uh, the recognition that it it's all by the power of the spirit of god and yes it's not by our strategy and it's not by our might and it's not by our plans uh, it is through the power of the spirit of god but but he he delights to help us in our planning and what you're seeing here is paul planning ministry in other words must be intentional and to be intentional involves planning and there are uh, three important features of such planning that you find here paul alluding to uh, this is the apostle paul paul planned and the three important features of such planning are these number one it should be focused the great aim should always be in view now for paul that meant pioneering work he was clear about that and in the case of all the lord's people such plans should be essentially missional in their objective should be directed towards men and women coming to know the lord jesus christ those who haven't known jesus coming to a knowledge of him um, should be focused within the parameters that god has given to you in terms of your life focused you can't do everything there will be certain things that the lord has said now i want you to do that um, uh, interesting in the immediate aftermath of his conversion paul's first question was who are you lord and his second question what do you want me to do uh, and and that's not a bad framework for our thinking the way in which we uh, we direct our hearts and minds to the lord we ask him first of all who are you let me see who you are clearly let me have a clear uh, view and understanding who you are let me see you in all your greatness all your majesty let me let me know you for all that you are and then show me what it is in particular you want me and call me to do focused first of all second thing about that planning is that it is forward looking and you'll see here paul's plans encompass both the short term and the longer term he was careful to think down the line a good few steps ahead of where things presently were at and that's important as well uh, very often in our own lives and certainly very often in the life of the church um, we we can end up living on a kind of hand-to-mouth type mm -hmm. of existence and and one of the reasons why NESGT exists in the first place is because uh, Duncan, Jeremy and myself uh, really were concerned to think down the line 10 15 years down the line and to be thinking so what will the church need in terms of leadership and how are we going to ensure that there is that leadership in place 10 15 years down the line to to handle and address and to minister in a context that is likely to be markedly different and uh, and we've continued to be forward planning and trying to to see where the lord takes us on from here in terms of all that nesgt is about in terms of that basic ministry training uh, and that's what you find paul doing here forward planning read through the passage see it for yourself the way in which uh, uh, he is not only focused in terms of understanding what what his particular ministry is and how that's going to find expression but also forward looking and the third thing is um, that it's flexible uh, our plans will not be set in concrete it doesn't matter if you get the plans wrong paul got his plans wrong in terms of that's not actually how things worked out 
circumstances change, things don't work out as anticipated or hoped, there is a need to adapt and adjust. We've all discovered that over the past year. None of us figured out that this was what the last year would look like. None of us anticipated that. We had to adjust, we had to adapt, we had to figure out, so how do you be church when you can't open the doors of the church, when people are, are confined to their homes and so on? And in Paul's case, that had meant not getting to Rome as early as he'd hoped. And of course, his plans to get to Spain didn't in fact materialize in the end of the day. That didn't um, uh, devalue uh, his planning. Uh, it simply underlined the importance of there being that flexibility in our planning. Uh, make time in your diaries as individuals, as churches, to plan, prayerfully to plan under God. Uh, asking that question, so what do you want me to do? What do we do next? And thinking down the line, uh, not just uh, the next couple of months, not just the next couple of years necessarily, but uh, down the line as well. You don't know what the future is going to bring. Of course you don't. So you have to be flexible. But um, it is important that there is that planning. Uh, and that's hard graft. Um, as, a, uh, as a pastor, uh, I, I have to engage in that planning in terms of the, the preaching program or schedule. Uh, what is this congregation needing? What book of the Bible is, is most pertinent under God for us at this time, at this juncture, thinking down the next few months? Uh, what are we going to need? What are we going to need when we get to September? Um, now, things may have changed by September. Who knows? But thinking down the line, planning down the line. That's the first practicality. Second practicality, verses 25 to 27, is the provision of material, practical help. Um, just notice here that the apostle to the Gentiles was factoring into his plans a visit to the saints in Jerusalem with aid for the poor among them. And if nothing else, that underlines the fact that ministry, your ministry included, must never become too narrow a thing. Um, let me explain just a little bit what I, what I mean by that. Um, first of all, by reference to Paul's apostolic ministry, Paul was an apostle. What do apostles do? Well, we learn from Acts chapter 6 um, uh, quite clearly that uh, their priority is, is prayer and the preaching of the word of God. Um, no doubt about that. His primary responsibility was that of preaching. But practical help in both organizing and distributing financial relief for the poor was he understood a complementary aspect of the ministry entrusted to him. He couldn't say, hey, you know, I'm a preacher. This is not the sort of stuff I do. Uh, he applied himself to that as well. Uh, the practical is as important as the more obviously spiritual. And then let me say a word just briefly about his Gentile focus as well. I've said that he was uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet it was to the saints in Jerusalem largely a Jewish constituency, among whom this aspect of his ministry was directed. And we do well to, to recognize the, the kind of balance that there is and the, the bread that there is. He isn't that narrow that as the apostle to the Gentiles, he cannot think of any, any merely practical help and um, uh, will only confine himself to the, to the Gentiles. Rather, he will recognize that, uh, yeah, that there's a responsibility more widely as well. Um, so in the, the context of uh, local fellowships, yes, uh, there's a concentration perhaps on that particular local fellowship to which you are uh, uh, attached and to whom you belong, but that should not blind you to the responsibilities that we all have to the church 
at large, for instance. So it's, it's just a reminder not to be too narrow in our thinking. Um, and then thirdly, verses 30 to 33, um, practicality, and I put it in these terms, it is a practicality. The most practical thing that you can do is engage in mutual prayer. And you'll see here that for all his apostolic credentials, Paul nonetheless sought and was always dependent on the prayers of God's people elsewhere. And he himself was committed to praying for those whom he had never met. Prayer is not an optional extra in relation to ministry, a kind of a little bit of an add-on, a kind of turbocharge that you, you attach if you really want to go places with ministry. It is one of the basic practicalities of ministries, ministry. And you see that in verses 30 to 33. Um, uh, I want just to say a few things in connection with that that I've indicated there, five uh, very brief points to underline about that. Such mutual prayer is, first of all, grounded in the love of God, verse 30a. Uh, the appeal that he made to them is to join me in my struggle by praying to God. Um, grounded in the love of God is the first 30a, um, where we pray um, from the Lordship of Jesus, um, whom we all acknowledge, uh, the love of the Spirit, which we all experience. You'll see that there. But uh, verse 30b, directed to the, to the work of God. Um, he's appealing to them to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. And the word that's used there by Paul, translated by the NIV as struggle, is the one from which we get the word agony. Um, it is hard work, hard demanding work. And he's talking, I think, not least about the, the hard work of prayer. Um, and, and so it is directed by, to the, the work of God, that ongoing work of the Spirit of God, and it, uh, it is fueling that work. Verse 31, it's informed by the people of God. Uh, in other words, he is telling them what it is that he is asking them specifically to pray for at this point for him. Uh, four things he asks that they pray for. One, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers. Two, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable. Three, that I may come to you with joy. And four, that I may be refreshed in your company. All of these are concerns that he has. You want to know what I want, um, what I'm looking for, for your help at this time? Then these are the four things, please, you can pray for. Um, it is a good exercise to be able at any given point to specify what four things you would be asking people to pray for so that if someone comes to you this evening and says so I would like to pray for you what are the four things tonight that you would like me to pray for then you'd be able to tell them what the four things are Paul is able to tell them that's what I want you to pray for particularly at this juncture um, I, I have a uh, a very ready answer for people who say, what can I pray for for you? I say, I would love you to pray for me. I'd love you to pray for me constantly, consistently, not just a kind of one-off. And here are five things. You have five fingers, uh, an A, B, C, D, E. Let me give them to you. Uh, one, pray for authority in the preaching. Pray B for boldness, because I need that. I'm, I'm a coward at heart. Pray C for compassion, for love, because without love, there is nothing. Pray D for discernment or wisdom, because I need that. Uh, gallons of it. And E for energy, the energy of the Spirit of God, his mighty empowering. Uh, A, B, C, D, E. Remember those. Pray for those 
pray for those things in regard to me if you're going to pray for me. Um, those are fairly general. Uh, I can be more specific uh, given any point in time. But if you ask me, what can I pray for on a regular basis? Pray for that. That's for me. Um, he also says, verse 32, fourthly, um, our praying is submitted to the will of God. You'll see there that it's uh, in accordance with the will of God. It's not just what I want or what he wants, but it's what uh, uh, is the will of God and concludes with the blessing of God. The God of peace will be with you all. Um, that mutual prayer whereby we are praying for one another and praying that peace of God into one another's situations. The final couple of sections uh, on ministry uh, really just draw the whole thing to a great conclusion. Uh, as I said, I, I love the way the apostle's mind works and the way in which he, he brings this letter to such a conclusion. A lot of people kind of um, just skip out of the last chapter of Romans because they look at uh, that long list of names and think, oh, help, you know, what's this all about? Just another genealogy or the New Testament equivalent of that. Um, but no, you miss the point entirely. It is, it is wonderful, wonderful stuff. And so I want us to look at this in the, the last half hour or so that we have. Uh, first of all, under the, the heading of Up, Close and Personal, the first 23 verses of chapter 16, uh, which has to do with retaining the priorities in ministry. Uh, it is quite easy to become so focused on what we are doing, all the practicalities of ministry, plans you have to do and the lists that you have to make and the tasks that you have to complete and so on. Uh, it is quite easy to become so focused on the doing that we lose sight of why we're actually doing it and fail to recognize always that ministry has to do with people. Uh, and that has been one of the hardest things about this past year, obviously, that um, we've, we've struggled in uh, not having the same sort of contact with people, the three-dimensional person-to-person, eyeball-to-eyeball contact with people that is so integral to all that the gospel is about. Um, God has come in Jesus Christ. He has become flesh. Uh, the incarnation is an important feature of, of the gospel. And God coming to us translates into the way in which we minister to others. It is about people. And equally, and I think especially, as I've mentioned before, in our celebrity culture, uh, when the, the spotlight falls on well-known and high-profile figures, it is easy to forget that the ministry of Christ is exercised by all believers together. Uh, not just the big names, not just the high profiles, not just the preachers, but all believers together. He has given you the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And in this penultimate part of the section, therefore, the focus of the apostle falls, I think, very deliberately on the ministry of all believers and highlights the importance of the personal nature of all ministry. Now, you'll find that um, breaking into these three different parts in, in uh, this particular section, verses 1 to 23. First of all, verses 1 to 16, the way in which uh, this ministry is geared towards encouraging the saints. And uh, there's a, a number of general points to notice about this long list of people in chapter 16. A uh, long list of people in Rome whom Paul now greets as he rounds off his letter. Um, 
I want to underline for you the importance of remembering people's names. Paul here mentions a whole load of different individuals by name and praying for individuals by name and in the context of their specific circumstances is in some ways the best way to remember people's names. Uh, you can think of the way that Jesus made uh, the, the use that Jesus made of names, um, the impact for a guy like Zacchaeus, where uh, guys climbed up the tree and just, uh, you know, anonymous up there. And Jesus stops and says, Zacchaeus knows him and calls him by name. The way in which he speaks to Mary by name. And when he mentions her name, that's that's a pivotal moment for her. Mary he says uh, when he calls and speaks to Simon, 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 um, I prayed for you by name. Um, hugely important to remember people's names and most of us are not that good at it and a common experience is that after about one minute of speaking with a new person that we've never met before we've actually forgotten what their name was when they introduced themselves to us hold on to that the moment they mention what their name is hold on to that and find a way of of simply storing that name um, associated with something, um, but ensure that that it's the name that you have remembered so that you can actually then uh, speak of the person, you can speak to the person, you can pray for the person by name. Uh, I, I was very aware of that from the very outset of uh, my calling as a minister of the word of God, that to, to minister appropriately in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would mean that I had to remember people's names. And uh, not just their names, but um, the details about them as well. Um, when, when I was in Edinburgh, um, what used to happen at the end of the service would be that I would, I would go to the, the front door and people would come out and, and they would all come out and shake me by the hand. We'd uh, have a brief word there at the door. And, and you get less than half a second to remember what the name of the person is and to remember uh, the details about them. Um, some of them who have arthritis, for instance, if you give them a firm handshake, uh, they're just gonna wince with pain. Um, and you might think, well, it's, it's safe then just to, to kind of take the easy option, play safe and just give everyone a kind of fairly light handshake and, and that way you're not going to cause offence to anyone. But you do cause offence because some people think, you know, what a wimp, you know, is that, is that your handshake or are you trying to tickle my hand? Um, and so you, you get half a second to remember their name, to remember their arthritic condition, to remember a whole load of stuff about them, to be able to speak with them. That's a huge challenge. And um, something that I've always said, Lord, you're going to have to help me with this. Help me remember their name. Help me remember their circumstances and, and make a point of praying that because it, um, it is a hugely important thing for people that you remember the detail about them, not least their name. I remember once visiting a, an elder in hospital. He was in a room uh, with two guys, himself and another man. And because I'd been visiting the elder, I went over and spoke to the other man. And um, he was an elderly man. He was a retired uh, lecturer at the university. And we had quite a long chat about uh, various different facets of his life and his own condition at that time. And at the end, I said, uh, would, you, would you be okay if I prayed with you? And he kind of looked at me, I was surprised, and said, yeah, I mean, I kind of want to. And so I prayed with him and prayed for the matters we'd spoken about. And um, when, when I, I stopped praying, he immediately said, um, 
let me tell you something. And I thought, I'm going to get a rocket now. And he said, how, how did you remember everything that we've spoken about? I said, because you, you've just prayed about all the things we've spoken about. I said, well, yeah, that's what we were speaking about. And I said, I, I, I want you to know that the Lord cares about all the details of your life. And if by remembering them before the Lord, I've, I've impressed in your heart that there is a God who cares about you and the details of your life, no matter that you're up in years, no matter that you're no longer working, no matter that um, you, you really, your better days are past, then, then that's what I want you to know. There's a God who cares for you. Uh, he, was, he was just gobsmacked. He said, um, most people, he said, when, when I speak to them, um, they, they listen for the first 30 seconds. And after that, they've, they've kind of forgotten what we're on about. Details like that matter. Paul is, is very, very strong on the detail here. And not just their name, but you'll notice as well the way in which he reflects on people's qualities. In almost every case, Paul highlights a distinguishing characteristic of the person. They are not just a name, far less a number. They have a story to tell and a contribution to make. Um, it's, it's a very challenging, uh, very inspiring lesson that you learn from reading your way through that and the way in which he has been able to identify in each particular instance a, a, a kind of one-liner about the person that, that sums the person up in a positive way. Um, and it's, it's a good exercise to engage in, to be able to, to, uh, to identify what is the distinctive characteristic that, that means this person is a real blessing under God. And you'll see the way he does that. Let me, let me just try and run through this with you so that you get a, a feel for this. Uh, Phoebe, I commend you as Sister Phoebe of the Church at Cancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of this people and to give uh, his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been the benefactor of many people, including me. Uh, now, it is commonly assumed that uh, Phoebe was the bearer of the letter to the church at Rome. She's spoken of as a deacon. Uh, that may mean an official role, or it may mean simply what the word actually means, just a servant, one who ministers. Um, the reference to her as a benefactor or a patron would indicate a woman of some substance who used that wealth and influence for the furtherance of the gospel. And what her help had involved for Paul and others isn't specified uh, other than in the most general terms. But the church at Rome are being asked to welcome her and to reciprocate in the help that they now give to her because she is someone who has helped the cause of the gospel. Uh, and. You know, if you're Phoebe, you're, you're, you're kind of really quite chuffed. There's the apostle saying that she has helped me. And uh, you could kind of sleep easy that night in the knowledge that, hey, my, my life has been used by God. Uh, Prisca, our Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, verses three and four, they risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles, grateful to them, greed also the church that meets at their house. As this couple first met Paul at Corinth, you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, verse two, and from that time on, their commitment to Christ found expression in their commitment to him. The thanks of the Gentiles, maybe due to the way that they're risking their lives for Paul, preserved him for his continuing ministry among the Gentiles. And so they, they thank God for these guys who, who risked their lives to ensure that the, the gospel could go far and wide through the ministry of Paul. 
And uh, the reference to the church that meets in their house simply underlines the early church was a cell-based church meeting in small groups in the homes of believers. Uh, then um, my dear friend Eponitas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Uh, what a thrill it would have been for Paul to have seen the Lord work in this way in Eponitas. Uh, and I wonder he continued to remember him with such affection. Um, and uh, what a thing to have on your, your kind of CV. I was the, the first convert in Asia. Uh, and uh, uh, the Lord um, using him, as it were, as, uh, as the kind of prototype for all that he would do in abundance beyond him. Uh, Mary, who worked hard for you, uh, who this person was, is unknown. Uh, but the reference to her and to having worked hard is a reminder that no work undertaken in the Lord is either unnoticed or insignificant. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Um, just a, a little reminder to us to take note of uh, the work that people do very often behind the scenes and just to find an appropriate, maybe uh, occasional time just to, to stop and to thank them for the work that they've done. Um, uh, and Mary, she, she has this letter read, is, is just again so upbuilt and encouraged by that. Her, her labor in the Lord is not in vain. Uh, Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me, they're outstanding, possibly means well known among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Uh, kinsmen may well refer simply to their being Jews. Uh, though in nine, chapter 9.3, he does speak of the Jews as his kinsmen by race. Uh, so it's not entirely clear whether there was actually a, a formal relationship or whether it was just uh, they were Jews as well. They seem to have been well known to the apostles and had become Christians before Paul. And uh, that indicates that they may well have been, indeed been among the earliest believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost or in its immediate aftermath. Um, and it, it may well be, especially if the term kinsman means they were actual relatives, that they had prayed specifically for Paul's conversion. Um, and, and that would be something as well. Um, they were in Christ before me. Uh, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Stachys, uh, they were names that were common among Roman slaves, and almost certainly they would have been slaves. Uh, the names appear together, interestingly, on an early second century inscription, uh, Ampliatus and Albanus, uh, listing uh, imperial freedmen, that's to say slaves who had been made free. Um, and, and they were fairly common names of slaves. And so you have in the church at Rome, you have those who are, uh, are really just the, the kind of underdogs of society. Uh, then Apelles, uh, verse 10, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. You see, again, just a one-liner about the guy. We're not told the circumstances of the trial through which this man had passed, but clearly he'd come through it, a stronger Christian. And that fact is noted by the apostle. And he provides a practical illustration, obviously, what Paul had been on about in chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, about how suffering produces endurance and so on. Then he goes on to speak about the, the family or probably the household of Aristobulus. Um, some suggest that uh, this man was the grandson of Herod the Great and that his family or household may need to be understood in the wider sense of uh, that household and more particularly his slaves. 
then on in verse 11 to my kinsman Herodian, my fellow Jew, uh, and then in the, uh, the, the family of or household of Narcissus, Greece hold those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. This man Narcissus is thought to be a freed man of the emperor Tiberius, whom Nero had put to death early in his reign. Um, in circumstances such as this, the slaves who constituted his family would have become the property of the emperor. And so he is greeting those um, who may well be now uh, in the, uh, the service of the emperor himself. Verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa and also Persis, uh, my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. All these three women uh, spoken of as those who have worked hard. And again, striking the way that Paul, who is often spoken of as, as being a misogynist, um, he actually is, is so warm in his commendation of so many of these uh, ladies here. Verse 13, Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Uh, a Rufus is mentioned in, in Mark chapter 15, verses 20, 21, along with um, Alexander as the two sons of Simon from Cyrene. And given that Mark's gospel was written from and for the church at Rome, Mark's reference simply to Rufus and Alexander without further explanation would seem to indicate that Rufus was well known there. And it may well be that that's the Rufus, the, the son of Simon uh, from Cyrene. And that casual encounter by his father on the road to Golgotha had huge repercussions for Simon's whole family down succeeding generations. And here Rufus is described as chosen or more likely eminent in the Lord, indicative of the spiritual caliber of the man and his mother. Uh, and if I'm right in suggesting Simon was his father, this is Simon's wife, had shown a maternal care for Paul as well. And that was never forgotten by the apostle. Um, again, just interest, small and unseen expressions of practical care count for a great deal in the ministry of Christ in which each believer shares. And they all are part of that, uh, that million piece jigsaw that uh, the Lord puts together to portray the grace and glory of Jesus. And then verse 14, um, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Some of these unknown believers have names which are found in old inscription again as the names of slaves. And uh, you would note, therefore, that they are spoken of as brothers and sisters. They may be slaves in terms of the way society looks at them, but hey, they are my brothers. They are my sisters. And uh, those bonds are strong within the early Christian church, very real bonds. They are, they are not treated any differently. They are brothers and sisters. And all the old distinctions go out the window. Uh, Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus, verse 15. Uh, the first two uh, may have been husband and wife. The next two were certainly brother and sister. Uh, and the reference to all the saints who are with them may indicate that their home too was used as a gathering place for another cell of the church at Rome. And having run through that list, uh, verse 16, there's that exhortation to greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Um, and the holy kiss, which they're exhorted to give one another, is to be a tangible reminder of, on the one hand, their commitment to and care for one another, and on the other, the commitment and care of the whole church of Jesus Christ towards them. 
And it's, it's a lovely thing when you begin to experience that, knowing that you matter, knowing that you are cared for, knowing that you are greeted, knowing that you are appreciated, even if it's just a kind of one-liner that sums you up. Um, they worked hard, they're a brother, they've stood the test um, and been faithful in that, whatever it may be. So encouraging the saints, that's an integral part of ministry uh, uh, that we, we're involved in. Um, are you an encourager of the saints? Um, when, when Paul writes to Philemon, you may remember the way he speaks about you have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Um, live life in such a manner that, that you're a breath of fresh air when you come into the room, that uh, what you say, how you speak, the way you act, the choices that you make, the attitudes you adopt, you're an encouragement to the saints. Uh, you refresh the hearts of believers. 16, uh, chapter 16, verses 17 to 20, um, as well as encouraging the saints, it's important that uh, uh, we are not so nice that we don't also expose the frauds and here you see the, the other uh, complementary side of this ministry that Paul has, verses 17 to 20. The warmth of the apostle towards believers at Rome didn't blind him to the danger of those who presented as devout believers, but actually were frauds. And therefore, Paul exhorts the believers to be discerning in the fellowship they share with others and to deal radically with all whose attitude and instruction uh, would be a hindrance to the gospel and that's a necessary balance not just a case of being really nice to everyone and let's not uh, cause any offense or anything like that um, but it involves uh, first of all verses 17 and 18 recognizing the frauds and these two verses highlight the fact that they will almost certainly be recognized by one or more of these uh, qualities they will tend to be divisive in their effect they will tend to be deviant in their doctrine, they will tend to be dissolute in their aim, and they will tend to be deceptive in their manner. Have a read of those verses and you'll see what, what I mean there by those four things. And Paul exhorts believers simply to keep away from them, or in a word, simply avoid. So you, you recognize the frauds, and then in verses 19 and 20, he shows how to repudiate the frauds. Uh, such fraud is a constant and real threat to the work of the gospel. Um, we need to recognize that. We need to be alert to that. And uh, you do well, therefore, to consider uh, Genesis chapter 3 and the deception, the fraud which ruined the life of Adam and Eve. Acts chapter 5, the early years of the uh, first church. Uh, and a similar deception starts creeping into the life of the early church. Uh, it's, it's one of the key strategies of the evil one. He is the liar. He is the deceiver. And he will use that. And it's important that we are alert to that, always on our guard. Uh, and, and he's flagged up the, the kind of credentials that tend to be the, the telltale signs of those that are fraud. And, and Paul sets out how such fraud is to be addressed amplifying and what he means by the simple exhortation to keep away from them and what he says here is is akin in some ways to the exhortation he addressed to the church at philippi in chapter 2 verse 12 and 13 work out your own salvation for god is at work in you and you'll find that same balance in the way you handle fraud or deception in the life of the church here verse 19 
um, you work out your salvation. You make sure that you have an obedient heart. That's the first thing, that you are careful to be obedient to the Lord and his word. Secondly, cultivate under the spirit of God a discerning spirit. I want you to be wise about what is good, innocent about what is evil. And thirdly, uh, I, he says he, he wants them to cultivate an uncompromising attitude, uh, absolutely innocent about what is evil. And uh, you get a good bit of practical pastoral guidance from Paul in the pastoral letter that he writes to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And it's, it's as simple as that, an uncompromising attitude. No. Uh, we're not going there. We can't do that. We won't do that. Um, just the grace of God teaches us to say simply no. And uh, I remember Bill Hybels in one of uh, his books, he says that uh, there was an instance where someone kind of queried it and he, he simply came back to them and says, which part of the word no do you not understand? Uh, as simple as that, uncompromising attitude. Uh, so you work it out. There are things that you can do. And at the same time, verse 20, you recognize God also is at work in the fellowship. It's not not ultimately up to you to, to keep things pure and clean. Uh, we're looking to the Lord to do that. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The defeat of Satan has already been secured. The grace of Jesus has already been bestowed. Um, and the, the third part here of um, this ministry uh, amongst the people of God is um, verses 21 to 23, where Paul really in beginning to round off his letter simply highlights the way in which together as we minister, we embody the Lord himself. We, we make real to the communities in which we serve the presence of the risen Lord. We are his body. And as Paul in verses 21 to 23 resumes the greetings, he now highlights those who join him in conveying those greetings. And in so doing, he underlines that not only is ministry essentially a plural and communal activity, but that it is in our very diversity that the ministry of Christ himself is exercised. And so you'll see that uh, he, he brackets Jew and Greek together. Uh, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. Uh, Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage, Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, Lucius may well have been a reference to Luke. Uh, who quite probably was with Paul at the time. He was a Greek, Jason and Sosipater, uh, described as Paul's kinsman. Um, it's not clear if the reference again uh, to kinsman includes Lucius. Um, that's not entirely clear, but the, the latter two certainly were Jews and just possibly relatives. And you have this wonderful mixture, Jew and Gentile together um, and writing the letter together, sending their greetings together, embodying what the gospel is all about. God brings us together. You then have author and scribe together. Uh, this man, Tertius, is a humble amanuensis, just a scribe. 
and yet he joins the mighty apostle in conveying his greetings. I love that. Here's this guy who is a total nobody. And the only thing he does is he kind of uh, writes down what Paul is saying. And yet forever, he is bracketed right at the culmination of this great majestic letter that has stirred the test of time and been used powerfully by God down through centuries in countless different situations. He is bracketed with the Apostle Paul, the two of them together, sending their greetings. Um, I, I love that. I think the Lord just loves that, delights in that. The the apostle and this guy, Tertius, who's a total nobody. No one's ever heard of the guy. I, I know one is ever going to pay much attention to him, humanly speaking, but hey, he's bracketed with the apostle Paul. And, uh, and you get not only Jew and Gentile, not only author and scribe, but you get officials and nobodies together. Uh, Gaius um, may well be the Gaius referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, John Murray says that he's undoubtedly that Gaius um, and who's going to quibble with John Murray. And if um, he, he also suggests that uh, Gaius may well also be the Titius Justus of Acts chapter 18, verse 7, into whose house Paul entered. Um, and that's an interesting observation. But he certainly seems to have been quite possibly one of the leaders of the church um, in, uh, in Corinth. Erastus was the city treasurer, that's no small task either, and he fulfilled a significant role in the community at large, would have been one of the most influential members of the church, and Quartus is a man about whom absolutely nothing is known, except Paul won't say nothing about him. Uh, he hasn't done that with anyone previously, and so he will add something about him. And what he adds is significant as the conclusion to this whole long catalogue of people. He is our brother. Uh, he may be a nobody so far as the world is concerned. There may not be a lot that, uh, that other people are going to write uh, biographies about, but hey, he is our brother. Uh, he is my brother, your brother. And he speaks of him in those terms. And that's, again, indicative of the bonds that bind the believers together. We must zoom on. We have three minutes left to finish on a high in verses 25 to 27, where um, Paul is, is really on about our securing the purpose of ministry. Um, the really astute among you will recognize verse 24 doesn't seem to have been covered, and that's because it doesn't really exist. Um, not in the best and original manuscripts. Um, that's why it's not there. Uh, although if you're using the King James Version, you'll find that it's there. Uh, I, I'll not elaborate on that. We don't have time to, to go into the, the reason why it's included in some translations. Let me just uh, uh, come to the doxology itself. Um, this is the note in which Paul ends this letter. Uh, and very fittingly, he ends the letter like this. This great exposition of the salvation of God in Jesus Christ concludes very, very fittingly with a resounding doxology, which, which really encapsulates the essence of all that Paul has said through the course of the whole letter. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all Gentiles, that you and me included, might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And this is the end to which all ministry is directed. The praise and glory of God. Uh, and in many ways, this doxology mirrors 
albeit slightly more fully, the great doxology at the end of chapter 11, the end of the, uh, the earlier section, verse, verse 36 of chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Uh, from him, um, he's simply underlining in this doxology that it originates, this salvation of God originates in the mystery of God's own purpose. And in the outworking of that purpose, it has been revealed by God. It has come from him, that revelation uh, revealed to all the nations at the command of God in the prophetic writings of the scriptures and through the preaching of Jesus Christ. It comes from God, the salvation. It has been effected through him as well. Uh, now to him who is able by the command of the eternal God, so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. It is God's doing from beginning to end. He is the one who strengthens us, uh, who puts us on our feet, gives to us strength that enables us to stand at last in the presence of God and before his throne. And he is the one who brings about that obedience of faith. Uh, it is through him and it is finally to him as well, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, at which the church of Jesus Christ through the ages falls down on her knees and cries out simply a loud Amen. And uh, it, it mirrors really what you find in, in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 to 12 where they say salvation belongs to our God that's the theme of heaven all that Paul has been on about through this letter um, that's what heaven is taken up with the majesty the magnificence the wonder the the sheer massive scope of this great glorious wonderful salvation that culminates not only in lives that are lived in love and in the joy and delight that flows from that but lives that are at last given significance we get to serve the living god and in Revelation 7, 9 to 12, you find amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And in case you haven't got it before you reach the very end of Romans, it is through Jesus Christ. It is to him that we look, on him that we rely, from him that we derive all our goodness. We love him. We delight in him. We are glad day by day to live our lives for him as well. And when Paul uh, issues in that great doxology, uh, we simply fall on our knees before him and say simply, Amen. And so in rounding off this evening, if you're able to stay just for a few more moments, um, what I suggest that you maybe do is uh, as we, we bring up um, the music again and the words of that song, um, that you simply use the words of the song to become your praise of the Lord this evening. Let's, let's sing our way through the song again together.
gracious God, our Father, um, we desire simply that our whole lives should be that long resounding Amen, whereby glory and honour and praise and thanks is given to yourself and to your Son. We delight in you, our Father. Uh, thank you for this treasure of Scripture. Thank you for the unfolding of your great salvation by the Apostle Paul for the privilege that is ours in being able to work our way through it by the guiding hand of your Holy Spirit. Uh, grant, Father, please, that our hearts should indeed be filled with that sense of privilege in the priestly duty given to us of proclaiming the gospel of our God. Thank you that you you lead us by the power of your spirit into lives that now have significance as we share with your risen son in the ongoing work of the kingdom. Thank you for each and every one here this evening, Father. Thank you for their gifts, their call, their ministries. Be with each one, I pray you, according to their need. Minister to them, minister through them. And be pleased by your Holy Spirit to bring glory to your own great name as we thank you together for your Son and in his name. Amen.